The scripture reading today is from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, verse 12, and verses 14 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. We have been discharged from the law of Moses, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Not that the law is all bad. Indeed, without God's law, I would not have known what sin was. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from God's law, sin lies dead. So we know that the law of God is holy and just and good. But I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. That is, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. Indeed, it is not merely I that break God's law, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer merely I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a principle of life that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I, in my inmost self, delight in the law of God. But I see in my members another law, at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. How miserable I am. Is there anyone who will rescue me from this body that is still subject to death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, still our hearts, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us a deep and abiding faith that even through the fallible words that are spoken, you have a word for us, the word we need for our lives this day, so that we would grow in faith and in grace in the days that lie ahead. Come, Lord, and speak. For we cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that comes from your mouth. Amen.
In our sermons through the winter, we're looking at one of the most important documents in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Last Sunday, as we looked at the sixth chapter of Romans, we thought together about a potential flaw in Paul's message, a flaw that people in the churches to which Paul wrote and which he served had mentioned to him that had to do with Christian motivation, the Christian motivation for moral change and for accountability. Let me put their discussion this way. In Romans chapters 4 and 5, Paul had been arguing that as we seek to find and maintain lives that are rightly related to God, the word in the Bible is righteousness, but it means rightly related to God. Sometimes it's translated with the word justified. But as we seek to find and maintain lives that are rightly related to God, what we find is that this right-relatedness comes to us not by keeping all the laws and the rules of the Old Testament, but it comes to us as a gift, a gift of grace given to us by Jesus to be received simply through faith, like the faith that Abraham expressed in the 12th through the 17th chapters of the book of Genesis. And this is incredible good news. It's like winning the lottery and we embrace this knowledge, this gift, as it were, by faith. Do you believe it? Well, no, I don't. You won't pick up the gift. If you do believe it, you'll say, yes, that gift is mine. And that's true of the gospel. But at the same time, this incredible good news also raises this really important question, that if we can expect mercy that is new every morning, no matter what sins we commit, and the Apostle Paul would say, that's the gospel, no question about it, then why bother to be good? If God will always forgive us no matter what we do, where is the motivation to strive to be the best we can be or to be people who are godly in any way? Doesn't grace rob us of moral motivation? To which the Apostle Paul replies in the sixth chapter of Romans that if you think like that, he would say, you've sort of missed the point. That for the Christian, what is motivating in our lives is not the laws and the rules and the regulations, though they play a part, but fundamentally it's the relationship with God that has been established by grace that is to be the powerful force within our lives. Both the goal of our lives to be reconciled to God and in relationship with God, and now in that relationship to find a motivation which is far more powerful than any rules and regulations. And this, of course, is not just a Christian idea or even a religious idea, the power within relationships, but every sociologist knows this as well. And perhaps you do when you think about it, whether you realize it or not. In fact, in a sense, this is what Valentine's Day is based on. Love is powerful. For love, people will change the course of their lives. For the most significant others in their lives, they will change the course of their lives to be with someone, to please someone, to make someone else proud. Sometimes a parent who may be long dead, but that relationship is still powerful in our lives. And sometimes we're willing to please somebody that we love, even if it means doing the wrong thing. And so many tragedies are based on this mix of love and of the power of love to make us do not just the right, but the wrong as well. Well, this is true in the Christian faith as well, that relationship is the driver of our moral changes and our accountability 
before God. Now, let me add, because Paul begins our passage in Romans 7 by saying something like this, this doesn't mean there are no rules and regulations for Christians, or that in and of themselves, rules and laws are bad. In fact, rules and guidelines can be really, really important in any relationship to help us to establish how best to live within that particular relationship. And that's true in our relationship with Christ, and the Apostle Paul certainly believed this. In fact, when he gets to the 12th chapter of Romans, and I'm skipping ahead of ourselves here, Paul has a list of 30 commandments, 30 imperatives, 30 rules which we as followers of Jesus Christ ought to keep. I want to read some of them quite briefly to you, and you can turn to this passage uh, later on. But he says this, let love be genuine. That's a commandment. Hate what is evil. That's a commandment. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The verbs are all in the imperative. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. And there are 20 more like that in this glorious list. And then as he moves on to the 13th chapter, Paul even affirms, as did Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the importance of the Ten Commandments. Even though they're part of the law of Moses, these commandments are seen by the Apostle Paul as still providing us with essential wisdom and guidance for life, how best to live in relationship with the God who has created a relationship with us by grace and faith. So, to sum up, yes, it's true. We don't approach God or find right relatedness or righteousness or justification through keeping the commandments. No, no, no. We don't do that. And we don't approach God through the laws of Moses, which create, and many of these laws that we just skip over in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers are about this, that create a physical structure like the tabernacle in the, the wilderness or a temple. We don't approach God through those laws which build this old style of holy place for worship or through the laws of animal sacrifice or purity. No, we don't do that. But it's also true that when we approach God through faith in Jesus Christ, we do find the motivation we need sometimes through rules and regulations. When we bump into him, when we understand that he claims us as his own, when we become dependent upon him in a good sense as our savior and, and as our spouse, when we begin to trust Him with our lives, entrust our lives into His care, which is what faith in the Bible is really all about. When we choose to stick with Him no matter what, every moment of the, the day by faith, then all these guidelines become part of our new relationship, tools that Jesus can use, along with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is nothing other than the presence of Jesus living with us, within us in this reconciled, righteous relationship. These are all the tools that Jesus uses to change our lives and to renew our lives right here and now. And this change can really be substantial. It really can. I won't tell you any stories about that just now, but you perhaps know of somebody whose life, and maybe your life, has been changed substantially by Jesus Christ right now. But, and this is the message of the passage that we just read the bulk of the passage in Romans 7 that we just read a moment or two ago. Neither relationships nor laws or rules, good as they are, will ever have
have the power to make us perfect this side of heaven. Not until we die, not until God gives us new resurrection bodies to live in, will we actually become like Christ and God will fulfill the changes within our life that we begin right here and now. Only then, after death, in the resurrection, will that work be completed. So what Paul is saying in Romans 7 is this, that between now and then, no matter how spiritual we are, no matter how much faith we have, we will be caught in a struggle. We will be caught in a tussle. We will be caught in a battle to be and become the people God wants us to be. Listen again with this background. Listen again to Romans 7, beginning at verse 14. Paul says this. He says, I am of the flesh, which means I'm limited by my human horizons and by my human body. I'm of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin, even as a Christian. That is, I do not understand my own actions. There's always going to be an inner tussle within our lives. But I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. Paul has nothing against rules and regulations in principle as long as they're within the context of a relationship. Indeed, it is not merely I that break God's law, but sin that dwells within me. Some kind of pernicious force makes me weak all my life. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer merely I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it, he says, to be a principle of life. That when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. I and my inmost self, I delight in the law of God that I see in my members, in every part of my body and my being, another law, at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, the power of death that dwells in my members. And then he concludes, how miserable I am. Is there anyone who will rescue me from this body, this body that is still subject to death? And then finally, thanks be to God. Yes, there is. Yes, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This last statement is so important. This final poignant cry for help and this expression of gratitude. How miserable I am. I'm caught in this battle, this tussle. Is there anyone who will rescue me from this body that is still subject to death? Thanks be to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is this, that the tussle is there, and it will be there all the days of our lives. But there will come a day. So the first but is to say, there's going to be a tussle. It's not going to be over while you live. But then there's the second. There will come a day when the struggle is over, when God's eternal presence will fill our lives and God will renew our spirits and our love for God perfectly. When God gives us new bodies and this body of death has been raised to life by the power of Christ's resurrection. And this, this is to be our hope, not just merely optimism, but based on our faith in the life, the death, 
and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If he was raised in the body, so shall we. And we will be given bodies that are free from all the weakness, the decay, the corruption, the illness, the mixed feelings that we all have, but only at that time. In the meantime, we're not there yet, and at times this will lead to cries of real anguish within our lives. Why? Why is my life such a struggle? I'm a believer. Why is my life such a struggle? Why do I find temptation at every turn? Why is weakness such a huge part of my life when God is present in my life? Why has God made me this way? The struggle remains until we meet God face to face in the person of Jesus and he renews not only our spirits, but every part of us our bodies as well. This struggle here on earth is not only moral and spiritual, but it can be physical as well. One of my good friends in graduate school was named Duncan. Duncan was brilliant. He went to MIT. He played water polo there. But he had early onset MS, multiple sclerosis. And this was in his 20s. And when he came to his 30s, he died. He died young. In 1986, Duncan wrote these words. He wrote, This fall has been the hardest period of my life, period. You might find that hard to believe. I used to be a big walker. Nothing I loved more in Boston than just walking around the city and experiencing the rich tapestry of life passing by. Losing my legs was okay because I could leave behind walking a water polo and become a writer. I could leave behind drugs and wandering and become a Christian. I had losses, great losses to be sure, but they were okay with me because my gains were ever greater. But this fall, it's not my legs, it's my hands. How could I describe the hell of not being able to write? No journal, no notes, no articles, no sermons. So this is 1986. Personal computers are just coming in. If I can't write, I can't even think. Because when I write, I so often learn what I think. How can I express the terror of meeting a woman with MS who can only slightly move one of her arms? When my legs began to go, they were gone within two years. Is that what my hands will do? I can't even bear to think the thought. Who am I? Who will I be if my body doesn't work? If my body can't do anything, if I can't do anything, then who am I? In theory, I know I'm not only my body, but in practice, who am I? If I can't do anything, if not only can I not wander around walking, but I can't write either, who am I? And then he swears truthfully. Is this damn disease, this damnable disease, erasing me as it renders my body useless? Who we are is tied in, not just with our spirits, but with our body, in all its glory and in all its weakness. I knew a tiny part of this about five years ago before surgery on my back when I was limping for about a year and the doctor said, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, and I didn't know if it would ever get better, and it has got better. And I couldn't do some of the things, play some of the games that I wanted to play. Trivial, really, in the great scheme of things, but just a little bit of insight as to how much what happens to our bodies affects everything within our lives as well. But I know some of you experience things which are way more devastating than that. Chronic ailments and difficulties with health, with mobility, 
with minds, all kinds of things related to our bodies. And the turmoil and the tussle and the battle is ongoing. And Paul himself, as he writes, he knew some of this as well, both in his speech and in his appearance. In fact, some people accused him, a preacher, who for us is the primary preacher of the gospel in the first century, accused him of being a pathetic public speaker. Of no account, they said. And then to the Galatians, he writes these words. He says, you know, that it was because of a physical infirmity that I first announced the gospel to you. But though my condition put you to the test, you did not scorn or despise me, but welcomed me as an angel of God, as an angel of Christ Jesus. So what in the world is that about? We're never actually told what this physical infirmity was or this condition was that he had. But it was something so physically apparent that people shuddered or drew back or had the potential to do that. And Paul would live with this all the days of his life. So Paul in Romans 7, in our chapter, is speaking about the physical limitations, the trials and the tribulations relating to our bodies tied in with the spiritual limitations as well. Moral, spiritual, everything in our lives. Not unrelated to the physical nature of our being. C.S. Lewis writes these words. He says, man has held three views of the body. First, there is that of the ascetic pagans who called it the prison or the tomb of the soul, filthy, shameful, a source of nothing but temptation to bad men and humiliation to good ones. Then he says, second, there are the neo-pagans to whom the body is all glorious. And then third, we have the view which St. Francis expressed by calling his body brother ass or brother donkey. All three may be, I'm not sure, says C.S. Lewis, defensible, but give me St. Francis for my money. Donkey is exquisitely right because no one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It is a useful, sturdy, and then lazy and obstinate, patient, lovable, and then infuriating beast. Deserving now the stick, now a carrot, both pathetically and absurdly beautiful. All at the same time. So, says C.S. Lewis, the body. Theodore Dostoevsky, in his notes from the underground, shares the words of someone he calls the underground man, a retired civil servant living in St. Petersburg, who puts the struggle like this. Tell me this. Why does it happen? that at the very moment, yes, the very moments when I am most capable of feeling every refinement of all that is sublime and beautiful, as they used to say at one time, why is it that it would happen to me as though of design, not only to feel, but to do such ugly things, actions that perhaps all commit, but which as though purposely occurred to me at the very time when I was most conscious that they ought not to be committed. The more conscious I was of goodness, and of all that was sublime and beautiful, the more deeply I sank into the mire, and the more ready I was to sink in it altogether. At first, in the beginning, I did not believe it was the same with other people. And all my life, I hid this fact about myself as a secret. How lonely is that? But he's not alone, is he? He's not alone his experience in some sphere of our lives, 
and the way this impacts us will be different in every person's life, but his experience is true of all of us. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And to this struggle, to this battle, to this fight that goes on with us, our modern society gives an answer that the Apostle Paul would reject to our modern society with no ultimate standards of right and wrong, the response would generally be something like this. Here's the way to get rid of the inner turmoil and to find happiness. Go with the flow. Nature is always right. If it feels good, do it. It must be right. How can such feelings be wrong? You've heard all of these before. Why not pursue that passing or persistent thought? Why not break the vow when it's inconvenient? Or give people what they have coming to them? Or follow a sexual impulse which is out of order and say with Adam and Eve in a thousand different ways, it's my feelings that tell the truth. I really want that fruit on that tree. That's where my happiness lies. Not in God's Word. Not in the struggle or the battle. And certainly not in Jesus. Of course, we all want the fight to end. And as soon as possible. And one day, that fight, that struggle will end. But Paul says in Romans 7, not yet. Not yet. Right now, we live by faith and we live by hope. Not just wishful thinking, but based upon the actual event of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus within history. Believing that because of what happened then, God will, in the future, redeem everything that is a struggle or dark within our lives in order to use us in his service right here and now and to change us by his grace back into the people that we were first created to be. His spirit is at work, whether we see it or not. There is power in the relationship, whether we see it or not. Not complete, not perfect. We can move in this life but only in the day to come will that work be absolutely complete. In the meantime, there are going to be days in which we cry with the Apostle Paul, is there anyone who will rescue me from this body that is still subject to death? And when we cry that, I trust that also with the Apostle Paul, we will cry out as well, thanks be to God from the bottom of my heart, from the depth of my being. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace leads us into a relationship with God. God uses all kinds of tools to draw us closer to his side and to maintain that relationship. In that relationship, God says, I don't just want to be close to you, I want to live within you by my Spirit. And there is real power to be had there. But we're not at the conclusion of the story yet. And for that, we need to wait. And my prayer for me and for all of you is that in the meantime, no matter where you are in this struggle, God will give us the faith and the hope, the trust in God through Jesus Christ, that will always enable us to give him thanks. Let us bow before God in prayer. 
Almighty God, we, we bow before you. Some of us in the midst of really dark and difficult struggles just now, especially in this time of COVID, but perhaps for other reasons, maybe struggles that we've had throughout our lives, but which now have become even harder than they were before. We pray that you would give us strength to live our lives closer and closer to our Lord Jesus Christ, to know his struggle, and also to know the power of his resurrection, in part now and fully later. And if that struggle is not ours, in the meantime, we give you thanks as well. and pray that when it comes, we would be ready. Hear this, our prayer, through Jesus, your Son. Amen.